Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Home Field Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to episode four of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, and along with my brother and co-host, Andrew Newman, I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the podcast. Today's episode is all about Tampa Bay. The Rays are in the World Series, the Lightning are Stanley Cup champions, and the Buccaneers have the best quarterback in NFL history leading their offense. So we figured this would be a good opportunity to examine the history of a city that's not always thought of as a sports hotbed. Before we start, I'd like to take a minute to thank you all for listening to the podcast. And if you like what you hear, there are a few things you can do to help us out. First of all, you can tell your friends. If you have friends who might be interested in the podcast, please do tell them who we are and how they can find us. Second, you can rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. Leave us a five-star rating and a review telling us what you like about the Hello Old Sports podcast. And third, you can let us know. Contact the show at helloldsports at gmail.com with feedback, comments, and ideas for future episodes. I'd also like to note that in just a few weeks, we'll begin recording our In Memoriam special for 2020. These episodes will air in December and will commemorate the lives and careers of the many sports figures who passed away over the past year. So if there are any athletes that you'd like us to be sure to talk about, or if you have any memories of anybody in particular that you'd like to share, email us helloldsports at gmail.com and let us know. Thank you again, and we look forward to hearing from you. Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing all right, Dan. Um, I'm excited to talk uh, about this topic. It's not one you really give a lot of thought to. And uh, right off the bat, and this is something we can maybe touch on, because you said we're going to be talking about uh, the sports teams in the city of Tampa Bay. And I think it's always, it's kind of an interesting thing to touch on, which is that there actually is no Tampa Bay. And that's not something I knew until you know, maybe 10 years ago, just growing up, kind of learning geography through sports teams that they're the Bucks, or I guess the first team was the Tampa Bay Rowdies. And then the Buccaneers is the first real major uh, sports team. The team in the Tampa area have always been called Tampa Bay to sort of encompass the St. Petersburg, Clearwater and the, and really Pinellas County and the whole kind of area. But I guess that's a little bit of a sticking point for people in the city of Tampa itself, that when you say, oh, yeah, he lives in Tampa Bay. They like to correct you that Tampa Bay is sort of a region. It's not a uh, a city. The city is Tampa. I guess living in Tampa Bay would involve actually living in the Bay. So perhaps some fish live in Tampa Bay, but no people. I would imagine people who have houseboats. It's probably a big houseboat area down there. <laughs> Very true. So... Uh, this is uh, – we are recording this episode on the 21st of October, Wednesday, the 21st of October, but it won't air. You all won't hear it until eight days from now on the 29th of October. And 
So by that time, the World Series will be over. As we record this, the Rays are down one uh, nothing in the World Series against the Dodgers. We're getting ready to start Game 2 in just about half an hour to 45 minutes. Uh, we originally had planned to have this episode be about the two teams that are in the World Series, and we came up with that plan before we even knew who those teams were going to be. And we thought we'd pick a World Series or a couple of World Series from each team and just sort of go through how that worked. Um, a couple of things happened. First of all, once it ended up being the Dodgers, we thought um, we've done a lot, at least about the Brooklyn side of the Dodgers in the first few episodes. So maybe it would be a good idea to do something totally different. And then I came across an article, um, actually it was, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, which is not someplace where you usually think about interesting sports articles, but there was something about a week ago, and I'll link to this in the show notes, talking about how this was sort of a renaissance for Tampa Bay in American sports, given that the Lightning have won the Stanley Cup, the Rays are at least fighting for a chance to win a World Series, the first in franchise history. And by the time you listen to this, you'll know whether they won it or not. And then you have the Bucks with uh, Tom Brady, uh, the greatest quarterback of all time, Hall of Famer, six-time Super Bowl winner, signing with the team. And they just, uh, as we're recording this, had a big win against Green Bay last week, uh, this past Sunday. So a lot going on in Tampa in professional sports, probably more than there really ever has been. So we thought this would be a good time to sort of give a little overview of how professional sports have been in the Tampa area for the last, uh, I guess you'd say the last 45 or so years since they first got the Bucks in 1976. So, Andrew, did you have anything else to add before we got started? No, I think that sounds about right. Um, you know, we're, we're really talking about in a lot of these in a city like it's really anywhere outside the Northeast sports history kind of starts for the most part in the sixties or seventies, not sports history, but you know, the big leagues. So yeah, I think it's definitely an interesting look and sort of, as I was looking at, uh, at some of the team history uh, yesterday and, and particularly the Bucks, it, it, you realize just, I, this is probably true for every team, but how many little sort of nuggets or stories you hadn't really thought about or, um, uh, you know, just kind of put together. So I think there's definitely going to be some stuff that uh, that I'm that I'm interested in talking about, and that I think a lot of people either didn't know or haven't thought about in a while. So, so why don't we start with 1976, and that was the year that both the Buccaneers and the Seattle Seahawks came into the NFL, and the Bucks and Seahawks, uh, when they first joined the league, their first couple of years, they did something very interesting, something that I have never heard of before or since. And that is that in the first year, the Bucks were in the AFC and Seattle was in the NFC and their schedule was they played each other. And then they each played each of the other teams in their conference once. So 13 other teams in the conference plus each other, 14-game schedule, and that was their schedule. And that was done so that each team would play each expansion team 
once dur- during the first two years because the following year they switched. Tampa went to the NFC where they stayed and remain to this day. And then Seattle went to the AFC and they did the same thing over again. So each team got to in the NFL got to play each expansion team once over the course of two years. I don't really know why they did that. I don't know if it was for fairness reasons so that everybody got to beat up on the expansion team or whether it was to give the Bucks and the Seahawks experience in playing every other team and exposure TV, that type of thing. But really something very strange that I don't know, don't believe has ever been done in the NFL before or since. Yeah, the only thing I can think is, I mean, this was the first expansion uh you know, this was the first expansion of the NFL post the merger in 1970 or really, you know, 67 when it kind of the merger became inevitable. Um, you know, it was the first the NFL brought the 16 teams, the AFL brought the, the 10 teams and then three went, you know, and you had your two conferences of 13. So this was really the first time as a league of that size they'd had a merger um, or they, excuse me, that they'd added teams. Uh, the only thing I can think a Maybe just, you know, part of it was probably, oh, they can play every team and, you know, we can kind of show off our expansion teams to each market because obviously the NFL was a much different landscape back then. But I think another point may have been, remember, this is 76, 77. We're still in the four teams make the playoffs era of the NFL. So, you know, you got your division winners and then one wild card in each league makes the playoffs. Um, If you're... A, in a division with an expansion team and you're playing that team twice and there's only one wild card that may be you know if if you if you're late 70s let's say you you know the you're playing the bucks twice and you're minnesota or something meanwhile the redskins are in the nfc east and they got to play the cowboys twice well, not not a great example because everybody but the cowboys stunk in that division but you get my point so it might have yes. been that yes. and i think it was just I think the real answer is probably just it was sort of an unfamiliar thing for the league at that point, and they just sort of – somebody probably came up with an idea, hey, we have this number of games, let's just play, you know, let's have them play one team each and, you know, go from there. So that's probably what it was, but I'm sure I'm sure some teams who were originally looking at other teams playing them twice and not getting them to, not getting to play them at all had something to say. So there are really two things that stand out about the Buccaneers in their early seasons. The first is that they were absolutely terrible. They were 0-26 for the first season of 14 games and then for the next 12 games of the 1977 season. That is by far the worst streak, um, the worst beginning for any franchise in professional football history. And it is the second longest losing streak in NFL history. The Chicago Cardinals from 1942 to 1945 had a 29-game losing streak, but the Bucks at 26 in 1976 and 1977 definitely give them a run for their money with 26 losses in a row. They were coached by a man by the name of John McKay, who uh, 
do you know what his famous quote was during those time period? And there's no video of this, but it's been always been a story told that he said it's this. It's one of those stories where at this point, if it's true or if it's not true, we've decided it's true. So, and no, no, this isn't a story where anybody gets hurt by it. Not by, you know, if it, if it never actually happened and we've all decided to say it happened, nobody gets hurt by that. So why not? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. You want me to say it or? Go ahead. So basically they asked him at the end of a game or at halftime. That's not really important. If you know the detail, you can clear it up. But they said, coach, how do you feel about your team's execution? And he said, I'm in favor of it. And these were some terrible losses, uh, 42-17, 34-0, 49-16, did not score a point in their first two games. They lost 20 to nothing and then 23 to nothing. I'm seeing here in their second game ever against the San Diego Chargers in 1976, they had negative four passing yards, and I just have to check on that. Um, that seems unbelievable, but uh, that that's um, that seems to be yeah, because they lost they lost seventeen yards in sacks in that in that game, and they only had thirteen yards passing. Their first ever quarterback was somebody who. Some of you may have heard of it. it was a gentleman by the name of Steve Spurrier, uh, the old ball coach who went on to obviously be a great college football coach. But he was their quarterback in the early years when they were just terrible. And McKay, uh, even though he may or may not have ever made the line about the executions, he's known for just his intense negativity on the sidelines. He was mic'd up and he'd say things like, can't run, we can't pass, we can't kick, and we can't play defense. Other than that, I guess we're perfect. Coach McKay was very smart. Well, we didn't block him, but we made up for it by not tackling. We will attempt to come back next Sunday in Tampa Stadium in front of our own crowd. We've now proven we can't play on the road or in front of our own crowd. So we, we, we would like to have a neutral site. Quick-witted. We were unaggressive, we did not hustle, and we were uninspired. Hey, what's, you, what's wrong with playing Mon in the game? He tackles. Huh? We got all these old pros. Nobody tackles. You know, somebody said, what do you think of your team's execution? He said, I think that's a good idea. Well, these guys have almost got this. And the ones that aren't that are brainless. Get out there, you idiot! All the funny things that you hear from him or about him are, are true. Well, the reason I had a five-year plan, I had a five-year contract. See, I had a six-year plan if I had a six-year contract or a three-year plan. I had some of the greatest laughs I've ever had in my life with Coach McKay. What we should do is go down and get their champagne. But we'll drink our beer. So sort of a character who maybe lightened the mood a little bit, but that was the defining characteristic of the Bucks in the early years, one of the two, and then I think Andrew probably knows where I'm going. What was the second one? Of the Bucks? Yes. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly where you're going with this, to be honest with you. The uniforms. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was I was going to touch on those a little bit later. Um, you know, mm. But real quick, just to go back, because you were obviously the 70-16 that went 0-14 gets a lot of the guff, naturally so. But I was just kind of looking. I wanted to see when they played the Giants in one of those two years, because that was the, the 
depth of the Giants being horrendous. And I wanted, I knew the Giants probably must have beaten them, but I wanted to see by how much. And they played them in 77 and they beat them 19 to 10. But the first 12 games, and they obviously they won their next two games, uh, the, the Saints and Cardinals to finish the year two and 12. I'm going to read you their points for each game for the first 12 games of the 77 season, which they lost all 12 of these, okay? And again, this is 1977, not 1927. And frankly, it would be bad for 1927. 3, 3, 7, 0. 23, which was against the Seahawks, who were also in their second year. 0, 10, 0, 0, 7, 0, 0. They scored more than 10 points once in the first 12 games of the season. They got shut out six times. <laughs> so even though they were 12 and 2, they were probably worse that second year. Um, but yeah, the, 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 to touch on the, on the creamsicle uniforms to go back, um, you know, that's the example. And I, and I know now they've been sort of talked about bringing them back. Um, I guess the reason they haven't yet is because the NFL has the rule with, you have to wear your, you can only wear one helmet all year. So obviously they would have to wear their like pewter helmet, which wouldn't fit at all with the creamsicle jerseys. So they haven't done that yet. But if the rule gets, you know, abolished, they'll probably bring them back. Those uniforms, although they're objectively nicer than anything they've worn since then, they're just so associated. The creamsicle jerseys and the Bucko Bruce logo on the helmet with losing because really they wore those from 76 to 95 or 96 i want to say outside of one year maybe two that you can point to where they were okay they were awful every single year you know from the 80s the beginning of the team the early 90s so those jersey and then as soon as and it's not a a didn't cause b but as soon as they got rid of those jerseys they started to win with Tony Dunn. So I think those jerseys just became so synonymous with losing that they, you know, I've been hesitant to go back to them even for nostalgia's sake. And the funny thing is when we talk about another Tampa team in a little while, something similar where a cosmetic change immediately happened to coincide with the change in the franchise's fortunes. But I think that the jerseys are objectively really nice if you go back and look at them. But if you Google Tampa Bay Bucks creamsicles and hit images, you'll see really nice looking jerseys. And almost every time it's Vinny Testaverde getting sacked or somebody, you know, it's a bad play for the Bucks. So Yeah, so they're really just they were so different and the Bucks were so bad, especially uh, once. And I don't know. I assume the division structure was the same in the late 70s as it became in the late in the 80s. Maybe there were some slight changes here and there, but. They were in a division. They somehow ended up in the NFC Central. And this was the time uh, in the NFC where things were a little strange. The Falcons were in the NFC West. The Cardinals were in the NFC East. This was the St. Louis and later the Arizona Cardinals in the NFC East. But the Bucks were in the NFC Central with the Packers, Vikings, Lions, and Bears. Four teams who were sort of classic NFL teams four teams in cold weather cities, even though a couple of them played in domes, and four teams with very recognizable uniforms, as well as uniforms that were all different from the others. 
And so the Bucks, with their horrible record and their creamsicle orange jerseys, they just stood out in a way. So I remember when I was 10, 12 years old, when the Giants would play the Bucks, it wouldn't feel like an NFL game. It would just feel like for that week, the team playing them had sort of been transmitted to an alternate universe for one season to play this weird, horrible team with strange jerseys. We'll get to that in a minute because the time period from the Bucks being founded in 76 to their Super Bowl win in 2002 and sort of their prominence in the late 90s, there's really only a slight interruption, and that's in 1979 where they go 10 and 6, win the NFC Central. Uh, the, the only time they'd win the NFC Central between 1976 and 1998. And they win a playoff game and then lose the NFC Championship game to the Los Angeles Rams. And the bright spot on the team in those years was Leroy Selman, who was a defensive end out of Oklahoma. He was drafted by the Bucks, um, I believe, at the outset, at the beginning of their first season um although it might have actually he might have actually been on their team since the very beginning um you know he I, I take that back he was a rookie in 76 their very first year so he joined the team right from the outset and for years selman was sort of the lone bright spot for the bucks in fact even in 1979 when they went to the nfc championship and lost to the Rams, he was still the only pro bowler on the entire team and somebody who was beloved in the Tampa area for his entire career and even his close playing days. So he was really the bright spot, Leroy Selman, uh, somebody who's on the NFL 100 anniversary team. They didn't keep stats for much of his career, defensive stats on things like sacks and tackles, but, um, when they started tracking sacks in 1982, he had a season with eight sacks, a season with 11 sacks. So a great player, a leader on the team. I believe his his number is retired, I believe, by the Bucks. So he's really the leader as they go into this period in the late 70s and early 80s where they actually do some things. The other player who's worth noting is Doug Williams, who would go on to much more fame later in Washington as the starting quarterback for the Redskins in Super Bowl 22, first black quarterback to start a Super Bowl, first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl, and also the MVP through four touchdown passes in a single quarter. Doug Williams did with the Redskins, but got his start in Tampa and led the Bucks to this 79 NFC Championship game. Unfortunately, in that game, Selman was injured, didn't play. Williams gets hurt during the game, misses the rest of the game. So hard to say, but it would have really been interesting if they had actually won and you assume they would have gotten smacked by the Steelers in the Super Bowl. You might have perceived the Tampa Bay Buccaneers differently if they had made that Super Bowl in the late 70s. Yeah, and I, I did. So after that, in 81, they actually did win the division again in 81, but it was at 9-7. and seven. And, you know, that was back at that point, we're up to five teams making the playoffs. So they 
you know, didn't play in the wild card round and then the divisional round, the Cowboys beat him 38 to nothing. And then that was pretty much it for that little run. The next year they made the playoffs, but that was the nine game season. They were five and four. But, um, you know, the, the one pushback I would have on that with the if they made the Super Bowl, you might have think of think of them differently. If they had lost that game that badly there and this isn't fair, but up until a guy who we're going to talk about in a little while, but up until Bill Parcells took over the Patriots, the fact that they got to that Super Bowl against the Bears in 85 and got beat so badly almost was part of their embarrassing history. You know what I mean? Like, yes. when people talk about, oh, the 85 Patriots, or, you know, the, the Patriots losing to the Bears in the Super Bowl, like, if you ask somebody now, oh, name all the Patriots Super Bowls, and they, you know, start naming the Belichick teams, and the, and they get back to that, it's almost like you laugh at how badly they got beaten in the, in the Super Bowl that year. So, had the Bucks made the Super Bowl in 1979, I think most people would be able to realize, oh, yeah, that was quite the accomplishment after being in the league four years and how bad they were and everything. But if they lost that game 40 to nothing, I don't know if it would have actually dramatically, because you'd be seeing highlights to this day of, you know, whatever foibles would have awaited them in that game. Like you still see who was, who, who started, who was the quarterback in the, for the Patriots in Super Bowl 21 or excuse Super Bowl 20, where you see him kind of with his head down on the ground, kneeled over Tony Eason. Yeah, so it, you might have some of that. So I don't know automatically if they had now if they'd beaten the Steel Curtain and ended that dynasty. Much different story, but I don't think they. I don't think that was going to happen. So probably not. And the other thing that's worth noting is that McKay, even though he got off into an zero twenty six start, and even though he was the pilot of a zero fourteen team, actually kept his job and was with the team up until that playoff, those years of playoff appearances were over. So nice to see a guy who was there for the really low moments be there for some some playoff moments. But after that, things get bad. And starting in 83, you got 2-14, and 6-10, and 2-14, and 2-14, and 4-11, and 5-11, 5-11. The only real noteworthy player on the team during those uh, time in the 1980s was Vinny Testaverde. And even he really was not anything completely noteworthy. He didn't really become considered a really good, like a good quarterback. I think until he left Tampa and then first went to Cleveland and then later to the Ravens jets. And then he was just everywhere towards the end of his career, but started, uh, started for the bucks for five or six years, never made a pro bowl. So it's easy to look back and say, oh, they had Vinny Testaverde, but he was not known as a very good quarterback at all during those uh, during those years. Well, and I do want to add, and again, he was only there for a very brief period of time, and it's more about what happened after the fact, but they did have Steve Young. That's a good point. They had a young Steve Young who you know, was their primary starter in 86 and then you know, was still there and well, he was there in 85 and then 86, um, you know, after the he was in the USFL. Right. And then. Correct. Came, and then they trade him to the 49ers for 87. But, you know, and obviously it's several more years before he becomes the starter. But Steve Young obviously was a Hall of Famer. And I think we all kind of know if he had stayed with the Buccaneers, he would not have continued to be a Hall. He would 
it, you know, his career would have been much different, but you know, it is still one of those things where they did have Steve Young and, and kind of let him go and traded him to a team that had a lot of talent. They probably could have gotten back for him and they really didn't. So. Yeah. And Young at the time, I think, was not happy to leave to go back up Joe Montana or at least once he got there and he found out that he wouldn't be starting, he was not happy to leave. But in some ways, you wonder if maybe he during those early days, if maybe he wished a little bit that he was. <clears throat> excuse me, you if he wished a little bit that he was still in Tampa Bay, because at least he would have the opportunity to play. Um, I just want to look up here and see what the trade actually was. Um, um, While you do that, I'm going to, I'm going to zip forward and, um, you know, so all of that time in the late eighties, Ray Perkins was the coach, you know, had been the giant coach in the the early eighties, right. As they started to turn it around and then late seventies, early eighties, and then went to Alabama and then they, you know, they lured him back to the NFL. And after the 91 season, he's fired. And, you know, so this is now a franchise. It's been around 15 years outside of really a one, you know, a blip in two years in 79 and 81. And really 79 was the only year they were even a, de- you know, a good team. Um, so Perkins is out. And sort of ironically, the guy who took over for Perkins in New York. Um, it's, so it's one of the worst jobs in the NFL. I think people would recognize that. And Hugh Culverhouse, who was the owner at the time, enters serious negotiations with Bill Parcells. Bill Parcells, who resigned from the Giants uh, in April or May of 91, um, after the Giants had won the Super Bowl in 1990, or technically January of 91, citing his health. And, you know, right away uh, is, is in serious negotiations with the with the Buccaneers, and I have an article here from the Baltimore Sun from December 30th of 1991. Um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers head coach, uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers owner Hugh Culverhouse thought he had wooed a marquee coach, but Bill Parcells, who never signed on the dotted line, decided Tampa Bay was not the place to resurrect his career. So they had a verbal agreement. Parcells pulled out of the verbal agreement. Um, Culverhouse still went ahead with the press conference, says, we now feel we've been jilted at the altar. I thought we had a deal. I thought we only had the formality of reducing it to a written contract, which was done. His attorney agreed to it. We executed it. Parcells said we had not agreed uh, on NBC. And basically the deal's off. And then where it gets even more of a wrinkle is Parcells then about four or five days later after the new year changes his mind decides he's still interested in the job, meets with Culverhouse, and this time it's Culverhouse who decides this isn't going to happen. So Culverhouse pulls the plug on at that time, announces they're moving on. They sign Steve Weish, uh, as their, or they hire Steve Weish as their coach, the uh, former Bengals coach at the time. Um, and Parcells obviously eventually goes on to, to New England and, and all of that. But, um, you know, I was too young to remember this one. But just reading this, and we're going to talk about another time he did this to the Bucks about 10 years later. I remember him with the Patriots. I remember it with the Jets. I remember it with the Cowboys. I remember it later on with the Dolphins and all the rumors with the other teams. And it just, even though I don't remember this one, it gave me instant flashbacks to just how exhausting Bill Parcells was with all this nonsense. Steve Young was traded for a second and fourth round draft pick uh, after the 1987, I'm sorry, after the 1986 
season. So yeah, I, I agree. Parcells had, uh, this is from Parcells autobiography. He had made a 38 point document, 38 different demands. Culverhouse agreed to every single one of them, including a budget for the staff, country club membership, automobile use, and, uh, the is my favorite. The presence of free weights versus cable weights in the practice facility. Correct. And moving training camp to Wisconsin for some reason. Um, training camp so, in Wisconsin. Yes. So real, just to, you know, because it's something that didn't happen, so it's hard to argue, but he would have taken over a moribund franchise in Florida. It would really never been good. Whereas if he'd taken over the Patriots, they were equally moribund. And it's funny to think they'd made the Super Bowl six years earlier, but he basically took two teams that he took the Patriots, who weren't really in any better shape at that point than the, uh, you know, than the Buccaneers were. Do we think if he had gone to the Bucks in 1992, it would have been basically the same result as it was with the Patriots, which was pretty good overall? I mean, he certainly got them to a point where they were really respectable, you know, and got them to a Super Bowl and they weren't a joke anymore. I think it probably depends on how much rope he would have been given. He, because pl- they, Weiss coached the team for one, two, three, I want to say four seasons, it looks like. 92, or not, it looks like maybe it's actually five. 92 to 96, he coached the team for five seasons. Never won more than seven games. Never made the playoffs. But by 1996, you start to see the beginnings of some of the players that would make up the nucleus of a team that was really good later on now obviously everything's different um because if they're if parcells makes them better one year maybe they don't have an opportunity to draft some of those guys but by 96 um which was Junji's first year they had a lot of the guys who would later become part of that nucleus sap eric brooks john lynch really good defenders as well as Dilfer, who was the quarterback, at least for the beginning part of their good period in the late 90s. So I think he maybe would have done better than Weish, because if you look at what he did in future situations, you know, he took over a Jet team that had been a a mortal embarrassment and two years later had them in the AFC Championship. So you can't totally dismiss the Bill Parcells' ability to, to, to turn nothing into something. So. He probably would have done better than Sam Weish did. So I'm, I'm looking at that 97 team, which was Dungy's second year. First year they got into the playoffs. They actually won a playoff game before they lost in the second round. And just looking at the defense, you had Hardy Nickerson, who you know was one of the guys who was on those teams in the 80s and early 90s, the real stinker teams. Uh, you know, He was 32. He was still their leading defensive player. But then you look and... All the familiar names or most of the familiar names from the team five years later that won the Super Bowl. Derek Brooks was 24 years old. John Lynch is 26. Warren Sapp is 25. Uh, I guess those are really the three big ones. But those are, you know, you have the pieces in place of what would become the defense that, you know, built a perennial contender and ultimately won a championship. Like you said, Dilfer was the quarterback. And you also had Warwick Dunn and Mike Allstott in, who were both, Dunn was 22, Allstott was 24, 
you still had guys like Eric Rett on the team. So the 97 team was really the first, and I believe that was also the first year they were in the pewter, you know, kind of championship era uniforms. And I know that doesn't matter, but it feels like with the Bucks, it matters more than with any other team. So that was sort of the beginning of it. Dungey coming in and immediately they're a, a fierce defense. Uh, you know, they're 10 and six. They get lose the divisional in the divisional round next year, eight and eight, and they miss the playoffs. And then 99 is the, you know, the best year they'd had up to that point. They go 11 and five. They get to the conference championship. They lose to the uh, St. Louis Rams. And do you remember what the score of that game was? You know, it's funny. I'm looking at it now. I said the greatest show on turf Rams. And this was a game in St. Louis and the Rams lost. The Rams beat Tampa 11 to six, which to hold that team to that score. And I remember watching that game and just being surprised at what a, what a strange game it was for this super high powered offense for the Rams to only score 11 points. So yeah, so they, they hired Dungy student of the Chuck Knoll coaching tree had won a Super Bowl as a player with Knoll and then spent most of the eighties on his coaching staff and starting in 99 they're they're pretty good. Um, in 99, uh, Dilfer sort of wake, wears out his welcome and they bench him and, uh, midway through the season and sign uh, or put Sean King in. Sean King, who is very much a journeyman quarterback. So Dilfer, and then King is the starter in 2000, but it, it sort of becomes obvious that they're not going to go where they need to go with. Sean King as the quarterback. So in 2001, in Dungy's last year, they signed Brad Johnson. Ironically, uh, Dilfer then had moved on to Baltimore, where he goes and wins a Super Bowl with the Ravens. Mike Tomlin is the defensive backs coach of that team. So give you an idea of Rod Marinelli, another future head coach, is the defensive line coach. Monty Kiffin, uh, father of Lane Kiffin, the great college football coach, is the defensive coordinator. So the emphasis here is really defense. You have Warren Sapp, who's in the Hall of Fame. You have Derek Brooks, who's in the Hall of Fame. You have John Lynch, who will probably find himself in the Hall of Fame sooner or later. People thought he was going to make it. This year, Rondi Barber, who's a five-time Pro Bowler, three-time All-Pro, is on the team. They had brought in Simeon Rice at defensive tackle. That's half your defense right there. Think about it. Simeon Rice, Derek Brooks, Warren Sapp, Rondé Barber, and John Lynch. You're, you have those five guys on the field every time. So I wanted to... so. You know, oh one comes and they lose to the Eagles in the playoffs. So this is now, you know, you deal with the thing where the franchise had stunk for a long time, and Tony Dungy brings them to a level that they'd never been at before. And for a couple of years, that's a good thing. Ninety seven, they get into the playoffs, they win a game. Ninety nine, they get to the NFC Championship. Feels like they're heading in the right direction. Um, just to that NFC Championship game against the Rams. I just funny to mention that I. I have a, the, the the 
five seconds of the end of that game where the like the coaches and the quarterbacks are hugging. I have that on a tape because that night I had ordered a wrestling pay-per-view that started right as that game was ending. So like right as I was testing my tape out at the end of that game, like you know, the, the immediate post game where they're shaking hands and then it cuts to me turning on the pay-per-view, the wrestling pay-per-view. So I've always, every time I like have watched that tape over the years, I see the, I see Sean King and Kurt Warner shaking hands, but so then, you know, you get to 01 and they're losing the wild card round to the Eagles. And you're at a tough point because nobody's doubting Tony Dungy's a great coach and nobody's doubting that he's the best coach in their history and that the team is a good team. But at the same time, is it time for another voice? You know, he's a heavily defensive guy and you're not having a lot of offensive production. You're not scoring enough points and you're starting to get into the era where passing is a much bigger deal. Um, you know, you have work done. You have Mike Allstott, but the Sean Kings aren't really getting it done. So what do you think of? And I'm going to pull up an article here from January 19th of 2002. So right as the 01 season, the playoffs of the 01 season is still going on. They had fired Dungy after they lost that wild card game to the Eagles. And I'm not reading an old article. Or I'm not, I'm not repeating an article I just read. I'm, this is a different article that was written 11 years later. Title of the article is Parcells latest twist. He jilts the Buccaneers again. <laughs> Bill Parcells stunned the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the rest of the National Football League last night when he decided not to become the team's head coach. Even by the standards of Parcells' previous departures and arrivals, this melodrama stands out. And this is just the part I want to read. At the end of the day, this is part, a quote from Parcells. At the end of the day, I couldn't make the commitment that I knew it took to the job the way I knew it should get done. Parcells said last night from his Seagirt, New Jersey home. I couldn't make myself say, let's go. I didn't want to go there and after eight months say, what am I doing here? After next season, I'll be out for three years and I'll be 61 and that's it. I'm not entertaining any other job, pro or college. Now, let's be clear. That's a reasonable position to not take a job. I'm in my 60s. I've had my career. I've coached three different teams. I've been out of the league for three years. I'm enjoying broadcasting. I'm done. It was eight months later <laughs> that he was the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys <laughs> and then flirted with countless other jobs, took a front office position in Miami. So he did the same thing to the Buccaneers 10 years apart. I just thought that was, you know, interesting to say the least. Different owner by this time, but obviously. Different situation would have been taken over a team that, you know, was a perennial playoff team at that point. And I think um, there there were rumors that maybe Parcells started sort of angling for the job with Malcolm Glazer, who was the, by this point, the owner. And there's a quote here in his autobiography, in Parcells' autobiography from an agent, uh, Lee Steinberg, who's an NFL agent, says, if you're part of the football fraternity, you're not supposed to do certain things. There's a code. But there's a swashbuckling nature to Parcells. He'll do what he wants, when he wants. I think that's a perfect summation of Parcells and the way he is. Keep in mind, and this is a topic for a different episode, but after the Giants won the Super Bowl in 1986, Parcells almost immediately started flirting with the Atlanta Falcons to become their new coach. So this was not a guy who displayed great loyalty to his organization. In fact, you can probably look back at every single time he left a job and he pro or, or turned down a job 
and he basically left bad feelings in his wake every single time. But it works out for the Bucks because they end up with John Gruden, who, similar to Dungy in Tampa Bay, had lost out, had worn out his welcome with the Oakland Raiders, uh, sort of not gotten over that last hump. So they bring in, they bring in Gruden. They still have that great defense and they've plussed up the offense a little bit by this time with a number of discards from other teams. Ken Bilger is the tight end. He had been one of Peyton Manning's favorite targets in Indianapolis. Keenan McCardell came over from the Jacksonville Jaguars. He had been a pro bowler in Jacksonville and had had a number of thousand yard receiving seasons. And then you had Keyshawn Johnson, who had joined the team for the 2001 season after I'm sorry, he joined the team for the 2000 season after wearing out his welcome and basically demanding a trade from the Jets. So, by the way, within about a year, Gruden sent him home too. But he was on that team that won. he got his Super Bowl out of out of him. Now this is still a defensive team. They lead the league in points against. They're towards the middle of the pack in points for, but they're good enough. Brad Johnson is a pro bowler. Alstott's a pro bowler. Mike Alstott's one of those guys who I feel like if you weren't around when he was playing, you don't remember, but he was a really big deal for a couple of years. Just this bruising fullback. Uh, they called him the A-train who could run the ball in on the goal line whenever you needed him to. So he was sort of a, he was a star for a few years. Yep. And then, you know, the only sort of downside to this was, so they had Michael Pittman, who was the primary running back. John had left in the offseason between 01 and 02. So the guy who was really the main offensive workhorse during those years when the offense stunk and he was gone the year they finally got it done, Michael Pittman's the main running back. And then right behind him is Allstott. But, you know, yeah, the thing I remember about this defense and I'm going to see if I can pull up the numbers. And the reason I remembered is because they were my fantasy football defense that year. They scored a ton on defense. Like they, they, and defense and special teams, they scored a bunch. They had a bunch of turnovers, like deep in the other team's territory. Derek Brooks had three uh, interceptions for touchdowns on his own as a linebacker. So I just, they were, there's a difference. Obviously, a good defense stops teams from getting first downs and plays good field position and gets a lot of sacks and stuff. But you can, even if you have a, like a mediocre defense, which I'm not saying this team was, you can overcome that by having, making big plays and turnovers and scoring on defense. And this team did both of those things. 31 interceptions. That's two a game. So I want to make sure that we have time to talk about the the Rays and the Lightning. So why don't we just touch on the Super Bowl? So they go to the Super Bowl in the 2002 season. Gruden's first year. It is Super Bowl 37, I believe. And yeah, Super Bowl 37, and they face the Oakland Raiders, who had once been coached by John Gruden up until the very previous year. This Raider team is interesting. They're kind of fun. A lot of guys, Hall of Fame guys, who'd been on other teams and were now with the Raiders ending out their career, including most prominently the 
40-year-old Jerry Rice. They also had Rod Woodson. They had two legendary defensive backs named Woodson in Rod Woodson and Charles Woodson. Charles Woodson. Couple of pro bowlers on the offensive line, including the tackle Lincoln Kennedy and the center Barrett Robbins, who we'll get to. The coach is Bill Callahan, who is really a trivia question. He uh, coaches the Raiders for only two years, 2002 and 2003, and then doesn't have another head coaching position until last year with the Redskins. Um, and he was the interim coach on the Redskins and went three and eight. And I don't know what he's doing. The crazy thing of two things happen that I think are really noteworthy in this Super Bowl. First of all, the all pro center for the Raiders, Barrett Robbins, who suffered from uh, manic depressive disorder and another a number of other mental mental illness issues. He goes MIA the day before the Super Bowl. Just a bad situation, um, one that almost seems sort of humorous at the time, but as you kind of look back and see what he was going through, it's just sad. And so that sort of serves it as a distraction. That's also a story that I feel like, I mean, this was, two, you know, February of 2003. I feel like even now that story would be covered much differently because there was a lot of sort of he's selfish, what's he doing, he's a prima donna, you know. I feel like even now, just how far things have come Absolutely. with mental health, that story today would be covered much differently. That's Absolutely. Say on that. The other thing, and this is funny, and this is something that hopefully um, remains funny with time because this is just hilarious. The Raiders basically don't change any of their plays. Their coach, <laughs> who coached them and put in all these audibles and all of their signals and everything – is coaching on the opposite side in the Super Bowl. I watched in preparation for this today. I watched the uh, like the half hour highlight video of Super Bowl thirty seven, and you hear John Lynch. He's the defensive captain. He's mic'd up. He's basically telling his players what's coming. So just a the Super Bowl. The score in the early third quarter is thirty four to three in favor of the Bucks. The Raiders inch back a little bit, but. Sort of to your point about defensive scoring, in the last two minutes, Derek Brooks runs back a an interception for a 44-yard touchdown, and then Dwight Smith runs back an interception for a 50-yard touchdown. The MVP of the game is another defensive back, Dexter Jackson. Five interceptions for the Bucks in this game, and... This was against Rich Gannon, who I believe had won the MVP award in 2002. He had, and that was basically the end of his career. By the by, the year after, he was pretty much shot. And then I think he had like a scary, whether it was neck or spinal or something, and that was pretty much it for him. Um, and, and it wasn't it wasn't just that they didn't change their plays. They didn't change their calls. So... Like, it's bad enough to take over as coach and not change your calls, but then if you're going into a game with the old coach, you know, against the team that the old coach coaches, it's criminal to not change the calls. And then it's literally unfathomable to not change your calls when that game is the Super Bowl. <laughs> like, the fact that he didn't think, ah, this isn't important enough for us to come up with some different verbiage for our audibles at the line and you know our like snap counts and stuff he, he probably 
is the only coach ever who deserves to be fired <laughs> the night of the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I'm serious about that. Like, um, because people do forget about that. Dude, the Raiders were favored in that. And, you know, just before we put a bow on the, the and really most of the next 15 years with the Bucks, we can gloss through. But the one thing I did want to touch on the, before that Super Bowl, the NFC Championship game that year, the Buccaneers had to go into Philadelphia, who were the, you know, again, the, the best team in the NFC that year. They were the number one seed. It was the last game ever at Veterans Stadium, win or lose. And Eagles scored early. I think Mitch, Brian Mitchell had a really good return, maybe down five or ten yard line, or may, may have even been a touchdown, and the Eagles got up on them early, and that place came unglued, and it looked like, wow, the you know the Eagles are going to just run right through the Buccaneers, and then the Bucks dominated the rest of that game. So, just kind of an interesting, probably a more impressive win when you factor everything in, was them going into that environment and winning that game. So... You really you don't think about that Super Bowl because it was wedged in the middle of three Patriots wins. And not only was it the beginning of this Belichick dynasty that might even continue to this day, but also those three Super Bowls were all really close and really entertaining. And this one just wasn't. So, I, you know, you don't even you don't even remember that Super Bowl. When somebody says, yo, I was in college. This was the one year I was in college that the the Bucks were, or that the Patriots were not in the Super Bowl. If somebody says to me, tell me about the Super Bowl when you were in college, this would be the last thing I would think of. So they stick around for a couple more years. They've never won a playoff game. They, they lose to Washington one year. They lose to the Giants in 07 as the Giants are on their Super Bowl run. And then they have a series of coaches, uh, Raheem Morris, who's actually currently the interim coach of the Falcons, Greg Schiano of Rutgers fame, Lovey Smith, that, you know, and then things are really not very good until they sign Brady this year. Uh, it's really been sort of an almost a 20-year drought for them. So we'll see what happens. But they sort of have that one shining moment in 2002 of that great defense. And one more thing I wanted to point out, and I know these don't line up exactly, but you were talking at the very beginning, you were saying about how when the Giants played them in 1991 or whatever, it felt like traveling to an alternate like reality almost. One of the things that added to that, and it's weird to say because they hosted a couple of Super Bowls, the Bucks before they opened Raymond James Stadium, which was kind of like a really nice and neat stadium, you know, with the pirate ship and everything, they played at the what they called the Big Sombrero Tampa Stadium. And, I mean, if you look at that stadium in clips, like the Giants-Bills Super Bowl was there, just an utterly bizarre, no, like, concourses, real, or, I mean, no, like, the levels to it, really. It's all just, like, one level like at one point you'd have to imagine it's just like you're in section one row 400 <laughs> like just a very bizarre for the nfl in uh, you know 1995 or whatever and moving into that stadium kind of coincided with the dungy starting to win era so. on june 3rd 1977 led zeppelin played at the big sombrero but the concert was cut short due to a large thunderstorm an audience riot followed, with police ultimately using tear gas to disperse the crowd. Local authorities banned concerts in Tampa Stadium for over a year. So, yeah, and I'm a, I have a feeling most of those Bucks games prior to 1997, they didn't need to worry about doing anything <laughs> to disperse the crowd. So let's move on from football and let's talk about baseball. 
The Rays play in a stadium known as Tropicana Field, and that is a stadium that has been their home. It is a dome stadium in St. Petersburg, Florida, that has been their home ever since they joined the league in 1998. It was actually built, it was not known as Tropicana Field then, but it was actually built without a a tenant in mind. And they wanted to attract a major league team. And this is another one of those things that I remember. It seemed like every time in the early 90s that a team was having a struggle getting a new stadium in the city they were in, they would wave this, we're going to move to Tampa thing as a way to threaten. I know the White Sox almost moved there. The one that I remember was the San Francisco Giants. That, I think, if I remember correctly, was almost a done deal. I have an article on it. It's almost like sort of what the NFL did for years with Los Angeles before they moved two teams there. It was like, oh, we have that option. So I have an article. Um, and the first time I ever learned about this was that it was in like a PlayStation version of Jeopardy. They talked about at the end of the 92 season, San Francisco Giant fans, the last game, thinking it might be the last game in San Francisco, were like holding up signs that said, stay, team, stay, or whatever like that. So what apparently happened was, and I'm, I'm looking up the exact details here. This was in 1992. So the owner of the Giants at the time agreed to sell the team. And there's a there's a 60 minutes clip here, but it's uh, it's no longer available. They agreed to sell the team to a guy who had expressed that he was going to move them to Tampa Bay. And OK, so and then what happened was it has to go to a vote of the league. And for whatever reasons, I'm sure there were different factions and things, the National League owners voted 9-4 to four to keep the Giants in San Francisco and stop the sale. So basically, they, you know, wouldn't, the Giants owner at the time agreed to sell the team to a, a an ownership group that was based in Tampa, was going to move the team to Tampa, whether it was immediately or a year later, it was going to happen. The National League, and I, what I'm guessing happened is the Dodgers probably led a charge to make that not happen. That's just sort of my guess, is that's what happened. Um, wouldn't sell it. So the current owners remain the owners. They sold it to Peter McGowan for $15 million less than the Tampa Bay group. And the Giants voted to keep San Francisco in, to keep the Giants in San Francisco so their rivalry would not be whatever. Uh, other teams voted in favor of blocking the sale were the Mets, San Diego, Houston, Atlanta, Montreal, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Colorado. So that's pretty much a nice cross section there. Giants fans would also th like to thank. Uh, I don't know why this article is talking about Oliver Wendell Holmes. He allowed the above process to take place to the chagrin of Senator Connie Mack the third. Um, is Oliver Wendell Holmes still alive in no. 1992? Certainly not. I don't know. At least, Giants should also thank Supreme Court Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes. He'll, I, yeah, I don't know what this article kind of <laughs> loses me here. I think they're confusing. I think they're confusing Connie Mack III with Connie Mack and the A's. Something that happened with the A's when Connie Mack was alive. So I don't know what that article loses me a little bit. But um, basically, the Giants tried to move in '92. It was a done deal, but not for the National League owners. New ownership group comes in right after that. They bring in Barry Bonds and, you know, start to become a successful franchise. They build the crown jewel of stadiums and they stay there. And 
the Rays get an expansion team who play in a pit. Yes. So they get awarded a team. Um, I believe they're awarded in 1996 to, to begin play in 1998. And it's uh, the Diamond, the Diamondbacks in Arizona and then the Devil Rays in Tampa Bay. And I feel as if the Rays are sort of destined for obscurity almost from the start. This was a time when you were getting a lot of these teams in all the sports that just felt kind of weird. So you had two teams come in, both using the sort of teal uniform pattern that was so popular in those days. Both with names, you know, names in sports and especially in baseball, it's, you know, it's the Yankees, the Giants, the Dodgers, things that kind of roll off the tongue. Devil Rays and Diamondbacks, first of all, nobody knows what they are. One was a snake. The other one was some sort of a, a fish. And so it just became, and then they played in this stadium that was outdated almost from the moment they moved in there. Uh, this is a... Not even almost. It was outdated the day they. There's a started. book called Ballpark Baseball in the American City by a gentleman by the name of Paul Goldberger. I actually saw him speak about this book last summer here in D.C. And here's what he says in this book The embarrassingly long wait for a tenant was a wound that time would have healed quickly if Tropicana Field had turned out to be a great success as a baseball venue. But it was, exa- it was exactly the opposite. By the time it was finished, the idea of a fixed dome had fallen out of favor. It was one thing to have the option of protection from rain or extremes of temperature. It was quite another to force baseball inside under all weather conditions all the time, as Tropicana Field, the Astrodome, and the Metrodome did. From its first days, Tropicana, or Suncoast as it was first known, was a relic from another era. It was becoming increasingly clear that the answer for baseball teams that felt the need for some sort of weather protection lay in a roof that, like a convertible top, could be opened and closed at will. So just to sort of finish up on the trop, and then we'll talk a little bit about the team. It it remains a place that's I've not been there. You were supposed to go this year, right? Uh, Yeah, that was my my annual baseball trip this year where we go to a couple of stadiums each year and gradually tick them all off the list. We were supposed to go to Florida this year, Tampa, and then Miami, and something came up and we did not go. They are annually 15th in attendance in the American League. They do not draw at that place. Who wants to go inside in Tampa Bay during the summer? It's just... I, 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 here, here's here's what I can say. You need to have some sort of roof in ta- in Florida Absolutely. in the summer. I between the rain and the heat, you need to have some kind of roof. I understand. And you know, I, I understand that article that talks about the Metrodome and the you know stadiums that don't exist anymore, but did exist at the time. Those domes, ugly as they were when you look back at them, didn't have catwalks that interfered in play which the trop still does the big problem with the trop from everything you hear from anybody and this is where i kind of put this on baseball because stadiums become outdated there's no doubt stadiums become outdated you know you go back however long you want and 
the main reason the Dodgers left Brooklyn was because they needed to update Ebbets Field and you know they ran into various issues and that's 30 other episodes on its own. We don't need to, to talk about that here. But the stadium was not outdated when it opened in 1913. It was outdated by the mid-50s when they decided to move. And cookie-cutter stadiums, you can point to all of those. And they all became outdated, and now most of those cities gave their teams new stadiums, which is why they didn't move, but et cetera, et cetera. Tropicana Field was the field when the Major League Baseball said, we're, putting a, we're considering putting a team in Tampa Bay. The plan was to put them in Tropicana Field. So Major League Baseball in 19, 1996 or 1997 signed off on that as a suitable venue for the foreseeable future for a professional Major League Baseball team. So this is it's Major League Baseball's fault. But from everything you hear, certainly the stadium stinks. And, you know, Florida professional sports is always up against certain things, whether it's the demographics, a lot of people from other places, the weather, whatever. But the real problem and I remember looking at this when I was trying to set up my hotels for when I was going to be in Tampa and we were going to go to a Rays game. The Rays do not play in Tampa Bay. They play in St. Petersburg, Florida, which again, okay, plenty of teams play in different areas, you know, slightly outside the city, whatever. To get to that, to get to the trap from Tampa Bay, or from Tampa, excuse me, you have to go over what I believe they call the Sunshine Causeway which is a crazy long bridge, you know, that's the way you get there. There's not several alternate ways. There might be one other bridge, north or south or whatever. That's how you get there. From a public transportation standpoint, there is a shuttle bus that can take you to the trap from downtown. From downtown St. Petersburg, not from downtown <laughs> Tampa. Only way you can get to Tropicana Field from downtown Tampa is to drive or take a cab, or take an Uber, or whatever. And then obviously you have to do the same thing back. So for all the ugliness and the catwalks, and for a long time the non-competitive team, etc., from everything you hear, the biggest problem for why they do not draw at Tropicana Field is the stadium is impossible to get to. And I think it remains unclear to this day what their future is. I think there was talk of a couple of years ago about a new stadium, but it's not clear. And I think it's not clear whether it would be in Tampa or whether it would be in St. Petersburg. And obviously COVID probably has caused revenue issues all across the board. So chances are for at least the next few years, they are going to be playing there. They've talked about moving to Montreal, but it now appears as if they're going to be blocked from doing that for at least the next several years. So that's sort of the situation with the less than desirable ballpark that they play in. So what I remember about the early years of the Rays is that they sort of had a lot of players who had been good elsewhere. Some had even been Hall of Fame caliber elsewhere and then came to Tampa to kind of play out their play out the rest of their careers in a lower-key atmosphere. The, the most famous of this, obviously, is Wade Boggs, who'd been a Red Sox batting title winner, then was with the Yankees, won a World Series, then got old, Yankees moved on, and so Boggs, who's from the Tampa area, goes and spends two more seasons with the 
Rays, at the time the Devil Rays, gets his 3,000th hit there. And there's a drive. Deep right field. It is gone. The hit that makes history is a two-run home run. Bob's kneeling and kissing home plate. As soon as he hit it, Billy Hatcher, the first to greet him, and look at him celebrating. And comes out to acknowledge the plaudits of the crowd. They're some of their all-stars. In 2001, their all-star was Greg Vaughn. In 2000, it was Fred McGriff. They had two all-stars in 1999, and one of them was Jose Canseco. Jose Canseco with the Rays in 1999 actually has a bit of a renaissance. He's an all-star for the first time in seven years. He is voted the starting DH, but then has to miss the game because of an injury. At the time of the all-star break, Jose Canseco is on pace to hit over 60 home runs. Can you imagine, and I know the record was broken by McGuire and Sosa the year before, but can you imagine baseball if in 1999 Jose Canseco had hit 65 home runs with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays? Yeah, I think it's like, you know, it's one of those like, oh, all these guys nowadays who are on steroids hitting all these home runs. Well, I've been on steroids for 15 years and I'm going to show you how to hit all these home runs. <laughs> um, But yeah, it's like I kind of, you know, they came into the league in the late 90s and the Yankees were obviously sort of in the middle of their dynasty. And really all I just remember is just the Yankees, you know, killing, you know, it was, they had the big gaudy uniforms with the sort of fluorescent stingray on them. They were a 90 plus lost team every year. The first 10 years they were in the league and you really didn't even think about, it. you know, they finished in last place every year between the year they came in the league in 98 and 2007 they were in fifth place every single year except for one year in 2004. And even that year, they were 70 and 91, and they finished in fourth. They were just easy wins. That's As a Yankee fan, that's how you looked at it. And they were the shorthand that you went to when you were looking to make a joke about a bad team. You know, we're like, oh, yeah, you go to a Yankee game, and it's like, you know, you'd like to see them go see somebody play, play somebody good you know maybe they'll be playing boston or, or something like that i don't want to go see them play the devil rays you know that was kind of the joke that was that was all they were good for really they were also known for bizarre occurrences they sort of had a lot of really quirky things happen that you wouldn't it just kind of added to the perception that the team was sort of a a la- the, the, the the team was sort of a clown show um and some of them were good things you know don zimmer after he left the yankees basically became a coach with the devil rays in like 2004 5 and 6 basically just so that he could say that he was still in baseball i think he coached only home games and half the time he left before the game started uh, there's a movie a disney movie called the rookie from 2002 
which is about a relief pitcher named um, Jim Morris, who tried out for and made the major leagues at the age of 35. Well, he made the team with the Devil Rays, made the major leagues with the Devil Rays. Nice, heartwarming story, but if the team was anything other than just a disaster, they probably wouldn't have had room for a 35-year-old science teacher to pitch in relief for them. Uh, and then they bring in Lou Pinella, and that's sort of seen, and they bring in Pinella's first year is 2003. They bring him in, and that's sort of seen as the first step in moving forward towards a more professional atmosphere and maybe even a team that's going to start winning. But then they changed their uniforms that year too. That was like their first rebrand. They went to like the dark, the forest green colors and all that. But then they have to trade Randy Wynn, who's their only all-star the year before as compensation of the Mariners because Pinella broke his contract. And then I think what sort of became apparent shortly after that is that Pinella really only wanted the job because he was from Tampa and he never loses less than 90 games either. And I should point out all of these years after their first year, they're averaging in the teens for attendance. They're either last or next to last in terms of attendance, you know, 13,000 they bottom out at in 2003 and then it picks up a little, but they're just, they're a franchise that's been around for five years and they're already a franchise that you look and go like, oh, this team needs to be relocated and rebranded and everybody needs to be fired. So Pinella lasts three years, jilts them. He, He had jilted the, he had jilted the Mariners to go to the Rays and broken his contract. And then he opts out of his Rays contract a year early to go manage the Cubs. And then they bring in Joe Madden And here's where things start to turn around a little. There's still a 90-loss team almost every year, every year, 90 or 100. And then somehow in 2008, they turn it around. They they almost – they essentially turn their record from 2007 on its head. They were 66 and 96 in 2007. 2008, they're 97 and 65, win the division – win the ALCS over Boston, the defending champions, in seven games, and then they go to the World Series against the Phillies and they lose in five, but still an amazing turnaround that nobody saw coming. Yeah, that's that year was just you kept waiting for something to happen where it was like, oh, they're going to come back down to earth, um, and then they just didn't, and they get to the, the ALCS that year against the Red Sox, and... You know, I think the Red Sox were were heavily favored. They were the defending world champions from the year before. And it gets to a game seven. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't the the Rays, the Red Sox definitely came back a little, right? The Rays were up three games to one and the Red Sox won game five and game six. Uh, and this was exactly what the Red Sox had done the year before against Cleveland. And I remember watching game seven. We were actually living together in Alexandria at the time, you and I. And I remember just thinking they have no chance in this game. Like, they, you know, they're going to lose. The Red Sox are going to go to the World Series. And then Tampa holds on. They win that game. Um, and really, I mean, obviously it loses a little because they lost the World Series. But just got to be one of the most remarkable one-year turnarounds in sports history. Because there was nothing 
building to this. You know, it was it was the 69 Mets, basically, out of nowhere, and probably even more out of nowhere than the 69 Mets, but just absolutely no reason to think they were going to be anything but a doormat. And here they are, and they're in the World Series. Evan Longoria's first year, he's Rookie of the Year. Longoria becomes the face of the franchise for many, many years to come before he leaves and goes to San Francisco. Carl Crawford, who is still a young player, is another another guy who sort of emerges. Carl Crawford these days is known as sort of a malcontent. But when he was on Tampa Bay, everybody thought he was a damn good pitcher. This is one of the first years that you see the emergence of uh, B.J. Upton, uh, now known as Melvin Upton. Ben Zobrist later goes on to play in World Series with a bunch of other teams, the Cubs, the Royals. But this is um, one of his first years. He plays more than 30 games with the big league club for the first time in 2008. And so, like you said, it really does just come out of nowhere, this team. And the strength is really the pitching. Uh, Scott Casimir would go on to be an all-star and I believe David Price, I believe this was Price's first year. He was not a starter early in the year, but I believe he joined the team at some point during the season. He was like not bad who they, they brought up, like I think, you know, in maybe August or whatever, and then was a factor for that. Yeah, and by the time by the time they get to the World Series, a lot of these guys who would become big time players for them later are part of the team. They may, if you just look at the stats, you might not see it as much, but Zobrist is playing almost every day in the playoffs. Longoria, obviously Crawford. And then the pitching, the starting rotation in the world series is Kazmir, Kazmir, Matt Garza and James Shields. You have David Price coming out of the bullpen. So Nothing particularly memorable about this World Series, other than the fact that it was the first World Series in almost 100 years to have a game that was suspended and then picked up and played a couple days later. But... Yeah, the Phillies were about to win a championship. and they Yeah, had to exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, and the Rays, they are sort of not like the Bucks. They They lose this series, but they stay good for pretty much the rest of the next decade or so. They they have some dips, but 90 wins a lot of years. Joe Madden becomes known as possibly the best manager in baseball. He actually ends up jilting them for the Cubs, too, at some point. It's, it's funny, two managers in a row leave the Rays to go to the Chicago Cubs, but they've been, you know, they've been good ever since. Uh, Blake Snell wins the Cy Young Award a couple of years ago, and they're playing in game two of the World Series as we speak. And their business model is one that you really have to give a lot of credit to. They basically pick up guys who are either young guys who aren't going to get big contracts yet, or guys that are on the scrap heap that sort of rejuvenate themselves with the Rays. And they had, they've had to pick guys a couple of times. So they gave you know, Evan Longoria, they signed early and it's like, that was the one deal they could afford to give out. You know, after that 08 season, they knew they were going to lose Crawford. They knew a few years down the line price would be gone. 
They had James Shields at one. Like, they knew they can only keep one, and they picked the right guy. Now, ultimately, they had to let him go eventually, but they got a lot longer out of him than they would have if they had waited, because if it had gotten a few years later and he got close to free agency, they would have had to lose. You know, I'm looking at their sort of payroll, and this is going back, and they're never above 27th or 28th. A lot of times they're 30th. And I think people often misstate, you know, and they say like, oh, if the Rays had the Yankees payroll, forget about that. The Rays, and I, I'm just on some random website, so this might not be exactly correct, but let's say it's, it's you know, let's assume it's close to correct. I'll use 2019 just because it's a full season and this year is obviously a little different. They were 30th last year in payroll at $49 million. 20th last year was $97 million. Obviously, when you start to get up to number one and you talk about, you know, 180 from the Red Sox last year and all that. Forget about being at the top. If they could just be in the low teens, high 20s, think about what they could do. Like, they're not just doing this with a small payroll. They're so far behind, you know, Cincinnati most years that it's not even fathomable. They are the best organization in baseball. They really are given factoring in their limitations. And to me, 08 was impressive. But like we talked about with the 79 bucks. All right, it was kind of a fluke. They had a nice year. Don't discount that, but whatever. What the Rays did after 08 has been so much more impressive to me that they have continued to be a perennial contender. They've gotten to the playoffs more often than not. I looked at even that, like, four years where they were below 500. Two of those years, they were 80 and 82. And one year, they were just a few games worse than that. The fact that they know they're going to lose all these guys, and they they basically have to be perfect. Their organizational model, and they've been darn near perfect with what they've done. Yeah. And they're doing it again. Uh, this kid, Arena, who just keeps hitting home runs in the playoffs... Austin Meadows, who had played one year with a couple other teams, and now all of a sudden he's an all-star for Tampa. G-Man Choi, who we remember from the Yankees, brief cup of coffee a couple years ago, and he's smacking the ball in the playoffs. Not to mention the pitching, particularly Snell, who's a Cy Young Award winner. So they really are. They are, like you said, they're the model franchise. And it will be interesting to see, first of all, how this World Series plays out, and then second of all, whether them winning the World Series leads to any sort of a change in what they get from the fans. But you think two modern on the field things, neither of which they invented necessarily, but they've been responsible for the rest of the league adopting aggressively. During Joe Madden's era, they were the team that really exploited, you know, starting to use the shift, um, you know, moving infielders all over the place and, you know, bringing five infielders in and moving the shortstop to the other side of second base and vice versa. And now that's just standard standard operating procedure. And then in the last four or five years here with the opener, where you throw a you know, you throw a, a reliever for an inning or two and then you bring somebody else in for two or three innings and then you go to your, your regular bullpen and every other team is does that now and it's standard procedure. And both of those started under two different managers with the Tampa Bay Rays. Just one last thing, like if normally I wouldn't, I don't, you know, a championship parade should be a time for whatever. 
and I don't think there would be a parade this year if they won. You would hope not, at least. If they win and there's some sort of, you know, celebration, I think if you're the Rays owner or the GM, you almost have to make an announcement like, we'd hate to move this world championship team. It's a little exploitive and tacky, but I think that would also be an opportunity. It's an interesting question. It certainly hasn't happened in baseball. It's probably happened in the NFL in the 30s and 40s for a team to win a championship and then immediately leave or leave a few years later. I'm looking at my notes. They're obligated to be there through 2028, so they can't move for several more seasons. But if a team wants out, sometimes there's ways of getting around that. Um, So I think... That's a good segue just to talk real quick about the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, current Stanley Cup champions in the NHL. They were an expansion team founded in the 90s. They were originally fronted by Phil Esposito, Hall of Fame uh, player of the 70s for both the Bruins and the Rangers. They won a Stanley Cup a number of years ago, and then they just won one again this year. When they won their first Stanley Cup back in 2004, they were actually coached by John Tortorella, later the controversial coach of the Rangers, a guy who tends to wear out his welcome in a lot of places. I think there was a time recently where he coached three different teams in three different seasons. But they've been overall pretty successful. They make the playoffs pretty regularly and their attendance is good the last several years not counting i didn't count this year because it was such a strange set of circumstances but the last five years before that they were fifth sixth eighth seventh and eighth and the teams that are ahead of them usually in attendance are teams like the bruins the blackhawks the rangers original six or close to it teams that have been around for a really long time in hockey cities and have a really strong fan base. So for a, for a hockey team in a city that can't draw for at least one of its other teams to be not only that good, but also drawing that well consistently is pretty impressive. And what I was going to say is, is if you sort of expand it out, the whole state of Florida, for the most part, you know, has their problems with pro sports attendance, even when the team is good. I mean, you go very famously to the Miami Heat during the LeBron era, and there were problems there. And the Dolphins, who I think even despite what they've done the last 15 years or 20 years, are are considered probably the preeminent sports franchise in the state of Florida, professional sports franchise. They have their problems with attendance. It's just not a a a state, excuse me, that packs them in all over the place and to have a team in a non-traditional hockey market be as strong as they are both on the ice and in attendance. Um, You know, they came into the league in 93 and outside of one sort of seven or eight seat appearance, they didn't really do much until 2002, 2003. And since that time, they've made the playoffs almost every year. They missed the playoffs. It looks like six times since Oh three, um, they won the cup in oh four, like you mentioned, and you know what? That oh four team has the distinction I... of they are the longest reigning Stanley Cup champions. Yeah, because the there NHL was no era. season the the year before. And then you know, in eleven, they got to the conference finals and lost. I believe that was to the Devils. Um, 
you know, they got to a, another cup final in 2015 and lost to the Bruins and then got to the conference finals in 2018 and lost. So lots of deep runs into the playoffs, including a, an appearance in the finals five years ago, an appearance in the conference finals two years ago. And then this year after they um, defeated my Islanders in the Eastern conference finals, they managed to win the, win the cup and they are, um, you know, they're never going to get the attention the Penguins or the Bruins or the or the Capitals get with stars and legacy and all that. But they are one of the preeminent franchises in the NHL um, and they continue to be. And there's no reason to. I wonder if the novelty in Tampa, is, it's, you know, people live who've lived down there their whole life, maybe didn't know much about hockey. It's not something they grow up playing. And so to have this team come down. And I almost wonder if that contributes to their popularity, that it's such a novelty. I've been there 30 years at this That's point, fair. though. I mean, you know, I, 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 I get that. I think a lot of times people look at, like, the expansion to the Sun Belt and to Florida and all that. Like, there were certainly a few ill-advised moves, and some of those teams are still there. But for the most part, most of those teams have done really, really well. Nashville has made a comp or made a cup final a few years ago. They, you know, they're extremely popular down there. Tampa, they're, you know, they're a very popular team. The Panthers in Florida, a little less because they also don't play in Miami. And I think they made a mistake probably not rebranding them as the Miami Panthers. Nationally, nobody knows exactly where they play because they're just the Florida Panthers. Um, but uh, I think overall, you know, the, the teams that play in non-traditional hockey markets, the ones that weren't going to work have already I think that's gone. a fair point. You know what I mean? And then just one thing I wanted to touch on, and this is not a uh, something we haven't talked about, and there's a reason for that, which is, so the Buccaneers were the first team, the first pro team in Florida after the Dolphins. Uh, unless yeah, they had an ABA team for a couple of years, but they weren't, they don't really count. Early ABA teams who didn't stick around and weren't any good, I think we can kind of. Yes, absolutely. That. You agree with that? Well, they were the first team in Florida, first pro team outside of the Dolphins. And if you look, you know, the Bucks were rather, I'm, I'm saying, and then. The Rays came in a couple of years after the Marlins, and you know, same thing with hockey. They were the first team in the NHL in hockey. I believe they were in the league before the Panthers. You kind of look and you go, all right, why weren't, why didn't Tampa Bay get the second NBA team? You know, you had the Heat, and then you had Orlando right around then, and obviously, you know, Disney World and, and all of that. So Orlando kind of took the second NBA team from Tampa. But I did see this where Tampa then a few years later did bid. And this would have been the round where the Raptors and the Vancouver Grizzlies came in. And this is an article from the Orlando Sentinel in 1993. And it says, uh, it's virtually a completed deal. The NBA, which six years ago voted to or add Orlando and three other cities, which was Orlando, Miami, Minnesota, and who am I missing? Orlando, Miami, Minnesota, and Charlotte over the course of two seasons is expected to expand to Toronto for the 95-96 season. Left out is Tampa-St. Petersburg, whose formal applications received little consideration from the NBA Expansion Committee. 
league officials made it clear they weren't interested in expanding within the United States. So even after having the hockey team, they were still interested in adding an NBA team. But, you know, you kind of look at it, it seems like Orlando basically just Florida's got two teams in each sport, except for the NFL, which has three. And yeah, Jackson's probably not a good idea, to be honest. Seems like Orlando just kind of stole what would have been a Tampa Bay uh, NBA team. So that's why the NBA right. team in Tampa. We hope this was timely for you all as you celebrate the Lightning and watch the Rays in the World Series and watch the Tom Brady led Bucks vie for supremacy in the NFL. Thank you all for listening. A little bit, uh, something a little different the next couple weeks. We have some episodes on boxing and the heavyweight title and the evolution of that title and why we think it means, why it meant so much at one time and why it means so little today. Uh, those episodes have actually already been recorded and we're really happy with the way they went. So that'll be the next couple weeks and then uh, we will see where we go from there. So thank you all for joining us this week for a journey into the history of sports in Tampa Bay. I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.